Tonight we are in session number nine of our series on doctrine foundations. Um, and so tonight we'll talk about uh, something that is of interest to everyone, and I think that is ourselves. I think we're all interested in talking about ourselves, learning about ourselves, maybe some more than other. But the Bible has a lot to say about uh, what it means to be human. And with our doctrines that we've already covered, we've learned about Christ, we've learned about God. Uh, those doctrines have set us up so now we can learn about ourselves. Because we can't really understand man until we understand who created man. We can't understand humanity until we understand the God who created humanity. Um, and so when we talk about the doctrine of man, again, there's many different facets of that. Uh, tonight, for tonight's lesson, we're going to really focus on two main facts. The fact that man is created in the image of God and that man is a sinner by nature. So those are the two big takeaways tonight is that mankind, men and women, are created in the image of God and man is a sinner uh, by nature. And so first off, we'll start in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, we'll look uh, really briefly at, verse one, at uh, chapter 1, verse 26, and then chapter 2, verse, verse 7. We see, first of all, that man was created by God. Man was created by God. Genesis 1, 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And Genesis 2, 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the, the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So the first thing we see almost as soon as the Bible begins is that we are not an accident. Right? We see that we are intentionally, purposefully created by someone. Right? And of course, we've already gone over the doctrines of God and Jesus and the Trinity and how the whole Trinity was involved in the process of creation. Uh, but we are not accidents, right? You and I are not just random uh, pieces of space dust that happen to become these animals that we now label humans, right? No, we are intentionally, purposefully created by God as the creator. And as humans, we are the very pinnacle of creation, right? Sometimes it's hard to believe that, but whenever God created the land and the sea and all the animals and all the birds, all of that was just getting started. When God created man and woman, that was the pinnacle of everything that he created. And you have to ask yourself, why? Why is man special? We see even in the very beginning here when it's talking about how God created man, it's different than how he created everything else. Whenever God created the sun, the moon, the stars, the land, the sea, the birds, the animals of the field, he spoke them into existence. But if we see here in Genesis 1.26, God says, let us make man in our image. Right? God doesn't just speak us into existence. It's a much more intimate, much more personal relationship. I've always had this image of God bending down and, and just kind of sculpting man from the dust of the earth, right? It's a very personal touch. God could have just spoken and we could have existed, right? He was totally capable of, of doing that. He created everything else. He could do that with us as well. But instead, 
God takes special care, God takes a special method of creating mankind, that he himself forms us from the dust of the ground. Uh, so, of course, this, from this very beginning, sets us in opposition to the, the, the overall mindset of our culture, right? Our society teaches that you and I are nothing more than just really smart monkeys, right? Or really smart fish, or whatever animal it is, yeah. right? It's, it just, we're just products of time and chance, and there's no real ultimate purpose or meaning to us being here. It's just, here we are, so let's just make the best of it, right? But here in the very beginning of Scripture, we see that, no, there is a God who intimately, intentionally, lovingly created us. And so that leads us into the second point, which is one of the most important things that you and I can understand about ourselves and about other people, is that man was created in the image of God. If you ever go see the uh, statue of Abraham Lincoln in Washington, D.C., uh, it's, it's huge, right? It's 19 feet tall. It's carved from uh, 28 blocks of pure white marble. And it's just this huge, uh, just dedicated place for this one man because this is a man that is important to us, right? He is a key figure in our history as a nation. We, we honor him. We respect him by creating this statue of him to say, hey, this guy was so important to our country that we're going to put this massive statue of him right in our nation's capital, right? And that's kind of been the way that humans over the centuries have chosen to honor uh, really important people, right? We, we make statues of them. We create images of them. But here we see that in the book of Genesis, when God creates man, he creates man in the image of God. And this is one of the most unique fundamental things about what it means to be human. It's not just that we have language. It's not just that we are creative. It's not just uh, that we have special abilities that animals don't. The fundamental fact about why human beings are worth something and why human beings deserve dignity is the fact that you and I are created in the image of God. So what exactly does it mean to be made in God's image? It doesn't mean that we look like him, right? It doesn't mean that we have the same form as him. Uh, really, there's many different aspects to this, and the Bible doesn't just give us a list of what it means to be made in the image of God. But we see that in one way, we are different from all other parts of creation because we are morally accountable to God, right? God is not going to ask your dog why it did what it did when it was alive, right? Your cat will not be held accountable for the time that it pooped on your carpet, right? But you and I, as human beings, God is going to hold us accountable one day, say, hey, I gave you this life. Did you honor me with this life? Did you do what I expected you to do, or did you not? If you didn't, there will be consequences, right? That sets us apart from all other parts of creation. But also, the focal point is that you and I have a capacity for a relationship with God. No other part of creation can enter into a relationship with God as creator, right? The animals, the plants, the birds, the trees, they all exist. They all do the functions that God created them to do, but they can't commune with God. They aren't made in God's image. They can't um, sin. They can't do right. They can't do wrong. They're just animals. They're just plants. They just are. 
But the focal point of what it means to be made in God's image is that you and I can have relationship with him. Remember when we talked about the Trinity, one of the fundamental aspects of it was that each member of the Trinity was in relationship with one another. God was a father loving his son. God is in relationship with his son, and the Spirit binds them together in love, right? And so as human beings created in God's image, we can love God as well. God can love us. We can love him back. That is something that is so unique to human beings. No other created thing has that capability. That is the fundamental reason why humans have worth. The reason why humans have value is because we are created in God's image. And this um, affirmation that every human is created in the image of God is all throughout Scripture. Um, it's, also, it's also the basis for human worth and dignity. In Genesis 9-6, after the flood, God is talking to Noah about how they are going to establish uh, human government, essentially. And he says in uh, chapter 9, verse 6, he says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. Right? Why is it that as soon as Noah gets off the ark, which, I mean, who's alive at this point? It's just his family, right? Who's planning on murdering someone? I'm not sure here. But God gives Noah this fundamental foundational value for government rule, and that is whoever sheds man's blood, whoever commits murder, that person's life is now forfeit. Why? Because mankind is created in God's image. This punishment is not for those who kill animals or if I cut down a tree, right? God specifically says if you shed man's blood, because mankind is created in God's image. Even cursing other people draws God's disapproval. In James chapter 3, verse 9, he says, With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. That's why it's not okay to curse at the person who cuts in front of you in traffic, or who takes your spot at Walmart, right? It's, it's easy to get angry and upset, right? But why? Why are those things wrong? It's not just because it's not nice. It's because we are speaking against another being that holds the image of God, right? You see, this is how God sees us, right? We often don't value ourselves this much, right? We don't see ourselves as this important. We don't see other people at Walmart as this important for sure, right? But every single person has this amazing intrinsic worth and value because we are made in God's image. And so that's why things like abortion are evil, right? We are directly attacking the image of God. That's why Christians have always been the ones who refuse to terminate children with disabilities because we understand even in spite of physical differences, they are still human beings, and therefore they bear the image of God, right? That is why uh, racism has always been wrong, because it doesn't matter what color your skin is or what language you speak, you still are a bearer of God's image, right? If you are a human being, the Bible says that you were created in God's image. This is why Christians don't believe that men are superior to women or women are superior to men, because the Bible is clear in Genesis 1, male and female he created them in the image of God. Both sexes were created in God's image. This is why pornography is sinful, right? It's defrauding, degrading, and destroying the image of God for sinful purposes, right? We can just go down the line of, of, of why 
all these things in society are evil because we fundamentally misunderstand the value of human life. And that's easy to understand when we talk about things like abortion or murder or those types of things. But even our enemies have the image of God. Right? Even the members of ISIS bear God's image. Right? Even the people that hate you for no reason, they are image bearers. Right? The people that uh, are condoning and promoting evil in our society who we would view as um, enemies of the gospel, they still have intrinsic worth and value simply by the fact that they are human. Because human beings bear the image of God. Whenever Jesus is asked a question in Matthew chapter 22, uh, he's asked, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, we often think of the law as being simply Ten Commandments, which it certainly was a part of that. But Moses had given the Jews 613 laws. All right? They had a lot of laws. And Jesus, from the 613 laws that Moses gave, he didn't pick a single one of those laws. Jesus said instead in verse 37, he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Right? Jesus sums up the entire law of the Old Testament, all 613 of them. He doesn't quote one of those 613. Instead, he says, hey, look, if you want to complete the law, you need to love God and you need to love other people in that order. Because we cannot love people who are made in the image of God if we don't love God himself. Amen. Right? That's, that's the order in which it is designed to work. And the Ten Commandments, if there's one word that the Ten Commandments can be reduced to, it's, it's sacred. Your life is sacred. Your, your property is sacred. Your marriage is sacred. Your time is sacred. And so is your neighbor's. Right? Not only are you valuable, not only is your life and your time and your marriage valuable, but the lifetime and marriage of others are valuable as well because they are also image bearers. The value given to us is intrinsic. Every human life is a life of worth and a life of value. So the one commandment that Jesus chooses out of the 613 is love. You must love God. So despite our society's obsession with uh, self-esteem, right, people are still constantly, on the other hand, being told that they aren't special. Right? We're all just results of random chance and time that produced people. But our responsibility as, as Christians is to love people in the best way possible. Right? To, to tell them, hey, you're not just a random accident. You're not just a, any old person. You are an image bearer of God the Creator. You were intentionally handcrafted by God for a reason. That gives you value. That gives you worth. That gives you something that no other piece of creation has. So we are told to tell others that they have the image of God on them, that they were intentionally created for a purpose, and that because of that, they are loved. This is why Jesus, in his ministry, he always is seeking out the outcasts, right? He's always seeking out the people that society has rejected, the people who have committed these supposedly horrific sins, right? Or these people who have these terrible diseases that society doesn't know what to do with. Jesus seeks them out. Again, why? It's not just because he is loving. It's not just because he's a nice guy. It's because these people that he's seeking out, who society has deemed to be 
too far gone, Jesus still sees the image of God on them, and therefore they are worthy of his pursuit, right? Just think about how humbling that is, that God sees you, God sees me as worthy of being pursued. And again, it's not because we are innately good, right, as we'll talk about here in a few minutes. It's because you and I bear the image of God. We bear his likeness. We have the capacity to enter into relationship with him. We are the most like God out of all of creation, and that makes us special. And this is something that, again, sets Christianity apart from all other major world religions. If you are a, a Muslim, to be, to be called the image of God is considered uh, blasphemous, right? If, if you are Hindu, uh, they, they don't accept this concept because the caste system is so built into their culture, right? Which, if you don't know what the caste system is, it's a structured order of society, right? If, if you happen to be born into the top level, then, you know, good for you. But if you're born on the bottom rung, then your life is going to be horrible. And you deserve that because of karma, right? And there's no way up, right? That, this whole idea of every human being being equally worthy of value and life and love is, is something that can only come from a Christian worldview. That's something that only comes from, from Scripture, right? Other religions talk about love and they, and they talk about equality, but there's no fundamental reason why. And that's why societies that embrace false religions don't have equality. It's because there's no reason for it, right? If we subtract the idea that every human being is intrinsically worth something because they are made in the image of God, if we take that out, then, then what is the basis for your value or my value other than our subjective whims and desires, right? It's only the uh, teachings of Scripture that creates this idea that human beings are valuable, uh, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, uh, he, he kind of had this quote that really took me off guard, or at least made me think. He says, it's, it's a serious thing to remember that the most dull and uninterest, uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw them now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to this destination, it is in light of these overwhelming possibilities that we should conduct all of our things, all of our friendships, all of our loves, all of our play, all of our politics. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to just some mere mortal. He says, nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, those are mortal. Those will pass away. But their life compared to the value of a human life is like a gnat. He says, it is immortals with whom we joke, we work with, we marry, or we snub and we exploit. He says, next to the Lord's Supper, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. I know it's probably like a long quote, but when you think about what he's saying, it's like someday these people that you see that seem so average, so unimpressive, so ordinary, if we were to see what eventually people become, we would be tempted to worship them, Right? Because we all understand that someday, humans, we will, we will no longer have these bodies, right? We will be transformed. We will be changed. We will be different. We will be glorified. And C.S. Lewis says, if, if we could see what humanity is going to become, we would be blown away, right? The people that you and I interact with on a daily basis have an eternal destiny. It's either going to be an awesome one or it's going to be a terrifying one. But we're not just 
ordinary, useless people. So God created us this way, and it was good. We created perfectly in the image of God, fellowship with God. Adam and Eve walked with God in the Garden of Eden. But then, of course, we know what happens in Genesis 3. We see that, and point number three, that the fall disfigured the image of God in man. In Genesis chapter 3, we don't have time to read every verse right now, but the Bible describes the fall of man, right? Adam is placed in this perfect place. He is placed in the most wonderful garden that God himself has curated just for him. But Adam and Eve sin against God. And all of creation, all of humanity, now falls into sin. So now we, as sinful people... Do we still bear the image of God? And the answer is yes. The Bible affirms that many times. But now that image has been kind of disfigured. It's been defaced, right? You and I are not perfect image bearers of God. If we were, we we would not be sinners. So we still have worth. We still have value. But it's been disfigured. You know, God placed Adam in a perfect environment and gave him every opportunity to succeed against temptation and Adam still chose to sin. Um, so this is one of the first lessons we see in Genesis, is that the environment does not change the man. The environment does not make you and I who we are, right? And common thought today is that if someone has done something wrong, if someone has committed some heinous sin, well, their home life must have been bad, or something must have happened to them along the way that caused them to become this evil person, right? Now, no one would deny the impact of your environment, right? Who you grow up with affects you, right? But it doesn't make you a sinner, right? Adam was in a perfect place. Adam saw God face to face. Adam had never known death. He had never known hunger. He had never known sin. There was no reason environmentally for Adam to even think anything wrong, and yet Adam sinned against God. The environment is not what causes you and I to sin. The environment merely may bring out the sinful nature that is already indwelling each and every single one of us. Uh, think about Judas, right? He, he walked with Jesus himself for three years, right? You would think after listening to Jesus preach for three years, it would sink in. And yet Judas still betrayed Jesus. The Bible tells us in Revelation that at the very end of the millennium, right, there will be people who have lived under the reign of Jesus for a thousand years, and then one day Satan will show up and they'll choose to rebel against Jesus anyway, right? You can give us as human beings the best possible upbringing, the best possible opportunities, the best possible education, and we still have the capacity to do evil because the environment is not what makes you and I sinners. It's that you and I are by nature within. We are sinful people. So Adam was mankind's best chance to reject sin, right? He was a perfect man in a perfect place, walking with God, and he still chose to do the wrong thing. And then finally, number four, we see that man has a sin nature. So because of Adam's fall, because of the fall of creation, now every person that has been born since then has inherited, except for Jesus, that sinful nature, right? We are now all fallen sinners by birth. Right, so thank you, Adam, for that. Um, if y'all have seen uh, the movie The Village, 
It's uh, a story of this small community which, which looks like 18th century Pennsylvania somewhere, right? And we, as, as the movie goes on, you, you realize that this village was created by the elders, as they're called, uh, because they all experienced bad things that happened to them in their lives growing up. And so they think that they can create their own utopia, their own society that is perfect by basically escaping from the world. And so they create this little uh, society. They do their best to make it the safest, best, happiest place on earth, right? They have all these rules, and they have all these things they do to, to be safe. But then somehow, there's still sin. Somehow, their, their village, their little utopia, is still disrupted. And they find out that it's not just that you can seclude yourself from the evil of the world and expect to be okay. You discover that the evil of the world is within your own heart, right? You cannot escape your sin nature. Even after we become believers, right, you now have the ability to defeat sin, to resist temptations, but we've all experienced that inner pull, that inner desire for no reason that is there, right, other than the fact that you and I are fallen, sinful people by nature. It's who, it's who we are. Human sin is why a promise is not enough. We have to sign a contract because humans break their promises. Sin is why having a door to your house is not enough. You have to have the locks and bolts on your doors because people break in. Sin is why law and order are not enough. We need police officers to enforce the law because we don't just follow the law naturally. You know, due to our sin, we, we cannot trust each other because we are all sinful, fallen people. And so, it's sad, but it's true. And one of the key passages for this, there's, again, many passages that talk about the fallen nature of man. But Paul talks extensively about it in Romans, especially in Romans chapter 5. I'll, I'll read a few verses here for us from Romans chapter 5. Uh, verse 12, he writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. But then verse 17, the first part says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that man, verse 18, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. And then verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. All right, Paul here clearly says over and over and over again in this passage that because of the fall of Adam, because of Adam's sin, we are now all fallen sinful people, right? You are not born good and then made a sinner later on in your life when you grow up. You and I are born sinners. We don't sin because of something else that happens to us. We sin because of who we are naturally as people. We often struggle with, we, we view sin as, as an action, as an outside thing apart from us, instead of viewing sin as our condition, right? Sin is not some thing that you and I do. Sin is not some outside force that works on us. Sin is the condition of our hearts. It's because of the way that our hearts are bent that we do evil things, right? And our hearts can be tempted by our environment. Our hearts can be challenged by other people, but you and I don't sin because someone else brought it out or someone else made us do it. We sin because that is who we are deep down, Right? This, again, goes so contrary to what 
our culture likes to say, right? Our, our culture all the time preaches that you are naturally good. If everyone would just leave you alone, your life would be great. If you can just go back to find that secluded island where you can just live your life in peace, it'll be awesome, right? Every Disney movie, right, is like, search your heart. Your heart is so good, right? But the Bible says in Jeremiah 17 that the heart is desperately wicked, right? That who can know it? It's so wicked, right? Our, our culture says that you are just a good person who had a bad stroke of luck. The Bible says that you are a, a bad person, a sinful person that sins because of who you are, right? No environmental change, no amount of education, no amount of money can fix the condition of the human heart, right? We, we've seen people who have gone from rags to riches, right? And their lives don't really get better, it just gets worse in a different way, yeah. right? They, they have now more money to do even worse things because their hearts have not changed, Nothing external can remove the sin nature that is within us except for the power of the Holy Spirit, except for the power of the gospel. Amen. You know, no matter how enlightened we may become, no matter how advanced our technology is, human beings still give in to lust, we still give in to rage, we still give in to greed because our hearts have stayed the same. We might look a lot better than people did a thousand years ago, we might eat a lot better, uh, we brush our teeth a lot more, hopefully. Uh, we have a lot more technology to keep us comfortable, um, but we have the exact same heart problem that our ancestors did. Our right, human beings have been the same since the fall. There really are no good old days, if you think about it, because in the good old days, people were still just as sinful as they are today, right? When we think about the condition of man, it seems like, man, I just... When is it going to get better, right? We as a, as a society continually are trying to figure out all right, what political system, what economic philosophy can create this utopia for us here so that everything will be good. And we are continually over and over again disappointed and we're surprised. But we shouldn't be because even if we did have the perfect political system, even if there was true equality across the board, our hearts would still be corrupt. We would still be naturally sinful people. Like Alexander the Great, man has conquered the world around him, but man has yet to conquer his own heart. Right? We figured out how to control and to analyze and to um, just be around everything, but we haven't figured out how to fix the human condition. Right? It seems like with every technological advance, that promises us that life is now going to be better. It does help us in some way, but then it creates a whole new slew of problems because people find a way to do evil with just about anything. Right? That's not the problem of the technology or the tools or the systems necessarily. It's a problem with, with us as people. Right? Our hearts are corrupted. But a proper definition of sin can only be understood in relationship with God. Right? Because sin is fundamentally not about me offending you or offending myself is about me offending a perfect, just, and holy God. That is what sin is. When you boil it all down, it is a breach in our relationship with God. We have done something that breaks our relationship with him, and that is what sin is. If you heard of the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, he's the one that famously said that God is dead. 
Uh, he also, the, the one thing he did say that that was correct, because, because God is dead, he said, in the 18th century, uh, the 19th or the 20th century will be the bloodiest one of them all. And it turns out the 20th century was more bloody, more violent, more corrupt, more evil than all the previous 19th centuries combined, right? The 20th century was more bloody, they had more wars, more violence than all previous years combined. Why? Because we said, you know what, God is dead. We don't need God. Look how far we've come. Look at our technology, look at our power, look at our wealth. No one has ever lived like this. No one has ever invented this before. We no longer need God. And because of that now, the 20th century was the bloodiest century of them all. You cannot take God out of the equation and expect there not to be consequences. Sin is fundamentally an offense to God. It is fundamentally a break in our relationship with God. And sin is also it is universal. You know, all people are sinners and all people sin. You know, in, in Genesis 3 is the first recorded sin with Adam and Eve. Uh, but from that moment, it's just like a constant repeating theme. Right? People do wicked thing after wicked thing after wicked thing. Right? It was Adam and Eve's son, Cain, that committed the first murder. Right? I mean, it's just, and from then on out, it didn't really get any better. Once you get to the book of Judges, okay, okay, God has his people, God has his nation, surely it's going to be a little bit together now. And the book of Judges is dark, right? There's some dark stuff in there. Even God's own people do terrible, terrible things. Why? Because the human condition is the same, the heart is sinful. And so the Christian teaching of human sinfulness might seem like a big downer, right? Like, wow, we're supposed to go around and tell everyone, hey, you're made in the image of God, but you're also desperately wicked, right? Not exactly encouraging. But the fact that God treats us this way shows us that we matter, right? God, again, God doesn't judge other parts of creation for them doing sinful things, right? They, they are left alone. It's us. It means that you and I are valuable. The fact that God hates sin so much, the fact that he addresses sin so much means that he cares for you. If God didn't care, then he would have left us alone. He would have let us suffer the consequences of our own sinfulness. But instead, he, he reaches down and he saves us, right? And, and sometimes we, we forget that how, how bad our sin is. We like, we like to categorize sins as here's the little sin and here's the big sin, right? Here's, here's the white lie and here's the big lie, right? Here's the small offense and here's the big offense, but when you understand that whatever you categorize in your mind as a small, unimportant thing, when you understand that that thing caused God to send his own son to be murdered and executed for that, that's not a small thing. Right? God didn't just die for the murderers and the thieves. He, he died for the people who tell white lies. He died for the people who are lazy. He dies for people who are greedy. He dies for people who just lust in their hearts. Right? Every seemingly small sin that you and I view as, oh, that's not a big deal, God viewed as big enough to send Jesus to die for, to suffer for. Right? But then Jesus came back to life, and he showed us that he has the power to defeat sin, to defeat death. So even though you and I have the irreversible seeming condition of sin, God says, hey, I have a, I have a solution. I have a way to fix this human condition. Even though Adam and Eve sinned way back when in the garden, 
I still love you because you are my image bearer. And because you are my image bearer, I will send my perfect image through my son Jesus to be your substitute, to take the penalty for your sins. And if you simply trust in him and believe in him, you will be saved from God's righteous judgment. Right? That's what God offers to us. Right? God is not up in heaven trying to find a way to judge you and me. He has offered his son Jesus willingly in order to save you and me, even though we are sinful people. But we need to understand this fact if we are to share the gospel, right? Because the gospel is good news. But it's only good news if someone understands that they are a sinner in danger of God's judgment. Right? As, as a church, we are not called to uh, call good people to come attend our services. As a church, we are called to, to find people who are lost in sin and headed to hell and say, hey, there is a loving God that loves you anyway because you have worth and value as a person created in God's image. Amen. God didn't design his image to go to hell. Right? That is for Satan and the demons. But that is where you will go if you reject the salvation that God provides through his son Jesus. Right? Is something that we can see on a daily basis. But it's also one, probably one of the most denied facts in our culture, right? Everywhere we go, we see people doing evil things. And yet we keep trying to convince ourselves that man is naturally good. But everywhere we look, we see the evidence shows otherwise, right? Man, when left to his own, is not, usually going, is not usually going to do the right thing, right? Man left alone is not usually simply going to follow the law. He's not going to love his neighbor as himself, right? Our natural bent is to be all about me, and if you get in my way, just hope you don't get in my way, right? That's our natural bent. It's only the gospel it's only Jesus that comes in and transforms our hearts from being centered on self to be focused on others, right? To be centered on fulfilling the desires of the flesh into walking in, in the Spirit. Only Jesus can do that. Only the gospel can accomplish that. But people won't receive the gospel if they think they're already good, Amen. right? People need to understand, first of all, that I am a sinful person who is lost and deserves God's righteous judgment. If they don't understand that, then Jesus just seems like a good option for how I should spend my Sundays, to live a good moral life. But we understand that because I am creating God's image, that means I'm accountable to my creator, and I've not met his requirements, then that's when the good news can come into play. That's when the gospel can really mean something, right? When people understand the gravity of their sin, right? Think about whenever you got saved. Before that, you weren't accountable to God, right? You didn't feel like you were anyway. You're like, hey, I'm doing my own thing. I'm living my life my way. But then one day, someone gave you the gospel, and you realized, wow, there's, there is a God, and he's going to hold me accountable for my actions, and he's going to judge me for those actions, and I know that I'm not good enough. That's when the good news about Jesus really means something to us. If you and I were naturally good people, then, hey, thanks, Jesus, for dying for me, but I didn't really need it. I'm good. But we understand that you're not good. You understand the value and the love of God sending his son to die for sinful, undeserving people. The first line of the first textbook ever published in America says this, In Adam's fall, we sinned all. Do you know that? It was a children's textbook, the New England Primer. 
It was the very first uh, textbook printed in the United States. The very first line of it talks about the fall of man, right? How encouraging for your kindergartner to read. <laughs> but, right, think about now and, and the uh, difference. We've forgotten that. We've forgotten about sin. We don't talk about sin. We don't talk about the fall of man. And so we think we're naturally good, so the problem is not you. It must be something else. And so we go to trying to fix the symptoms instead of fixing the actual problem, which is our own hearts. So we should never underestimate how valuable we are as people created in God's image. And now we should never underestimate how sinful we are as well. Right? That's the level of sinfulness that we had, is that God had to send his own son to die in our place. In Mark chapter 12, verse 14 through 17, there's this, another conversation between Jesus and a man who was questioning him. He was trying to get him in trouble with the Romans. And he was trying to ask him, hey, um, should we pay taxes or not? Sadly, Jesus said yes. But the way he said yes was that he said, give me a coin, right? And he says, whose image is this on this coin? And the guy's like, Caesar, right? And Jesus says, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. Sadly, the guy who's asking this question didn't follow up with the question, well, what is God's? I think Jesus would have said, whose image is on you? Whose image do you bear? The coin had Caesar's image. Give that to Caesar. But you bear the image of God. Give yourself to God. He loves you. He created you. He is why you have worth and value. So if you have ever felt worthless before, hopefully the truth that this shows us tonight will give you some encouragement. You aren't worthless. Every single person, simply by nature of being human, has tremendous value and has tremendous worth because you are created in God's image. No other creation has that privilege, has that honor, has that title. You do. And someday, as, as believers, we, we are discouraged probably sometimes as well by how sinful we still are, by the desires of our heart that still draw us away from God. But the Bible encourages us that someday the image of God that is within us will be perfected. Right? As we look forward to the day when we are with God in heaven, the Bible says that he is sanctifying us. He is making us more like himself until someday we are glorified and we will be perfectly perfect and complete as human beings. The image of God will no longer be disfigured within our hearts. It will be complete. Right? That's the hope that you and I are looking forward to, is that even though we are redeemed people now, even though we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, we also have our sin nature that is still very much alive and well. But someday that sin nature will be finally destroyed. Right? And that's the hope that you and I are looking forward to. So not only do we understand that, but we have to understand this idea that human beings, we need salvation. Why? Because we are fundamentally flawed. We are not offering good people a way to live a moral life. We're offering the only solution available to fellow sinful human beings, without which... They will suffer God's punishment. And so there's much to say about the, the adoption of man, but I think these two things are the most pivotal, are the most foundational 
things that you can understand and believe about what it means to be human. Right? The Bible tells us that we are far more valuable than we can ever understand. The fact that we are made in God's image. But the Bible also says that after the fall, human beings are sinners. And that, though, is the whole thread of the gospel in scriptures. Because we are sinners, God initiates a plan of salvation that culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as believers, now we are looking forward to his return when ultimately our sin nature, our sinful bodies will be done away with and we will be made perfect as he is perfect. And we will be perfect as he is perfect. That's something that every believer has the privilege of looking forward to. But as we go out and we try to make disciples, as we try to share the gospel with people, we have to give them the hope, the encouragement that, hey, you are worth something, you are valuable. But also the truth, you are also a sinful person in need of a Savior. And so as we understand who man is, we'll be able to better minister to our fellow man as well. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the honor and privilege it is to be called your children who are created in your image. Uh, we, we thank you for the love and care that you've given to each and every single one of us. I pray that when we are tempted to feel worthless, when Satan tells us that we are not valuable, that we would remember this truth, that we are human beings created in the image of God. We also thank you, Lord, for sending your son Jesus to save us from our own selves, to save us from our own sinfulness. And Lord, I pray that as we go out to share the gospel with our friends, with our family, with our coworkers, that we would encourage them with the fact that you love them, but we'd also be honest and say that they are in need of a Savior because they are sinners. And Lord, we, we thank you for your patience and love for us, for your ultimate unrelenting forgiveness for us when we have failed you, when we have rejected you, when we have sinned against you. Thank you for never leaving us or forsaking us. I pray that we would uh, be faithful followers of you and that we would uh, just treasure these truths you've given us in, in your word about yourself and about what it means to be human. And I pray for your blessings on those who are in here, Lord. And if anyone uh, does not know you as their Savior, we pray for their salvation today. In Jesus' name, amen.